Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening. Welcome to the virtual London School of Economics um, for this event, which promises to be a really fascinating one. And what we're going to be talking about today is a book. Now, I'm, I'm an academic, so I'm very lucky that I get to read a lot of books. But traditionally, you know, with all due respect to my colleagues, uh, you know, I tend not to remember them after five years, let alone after 25. And today's event, we're going to be talking about an exception. And this is a book, uh, Will Hutton's The State We're In. Now, you know, this is a, a really interesting and important work of the time. This copy actually is my original copy, and it was bought to me by my grandmother, Pat, who um, brought it me and she's left a little note in there to tell me it's to help out with my economics A-level. Um, and I got an A, so thanks, Will. <laughs> it's a vivid, engaging polemic, which is really a sort of diagnosis of the problems of the UK of the time and a sort of suggestion for some solutions. And I think it's a really interesting piece of work, partly because of the problems it names about high inequality, um, an e- economy dominated by London and finance, um, a government, a fourth term conservative government, which is dogged by sleaze allegations, um, some issues around the royal family and, and some sort of problems with some of the princes. And so it's a really interesting book, I think, to discuss now. But you'll have guessed from my introduction that we're not just going to be talking about the state we were in, if I can say it like that, but also about the state we're in now. It's not just about the book. It's about the current situation of progressive politics in today in today's UK. So I'm delighted to welcome three really fantastic speakers today. So first of all, we have Will Hutton. So Will is, um, as you will probably know, a very, very you know, well-known British journalist, used to be the editor of The Observer, still writes a column. He's also been principal of Hartford College, Oxford. Um, he's been the director of the Work Foundation, where we work together. He's an affiliate of the LSE's Centre for Economic Performance, and he's chair of the Academy of Social Sciences, one of our august bodies. Now, Will's going to be kicking off today with about a sort of 30-minute um, discussion of the book and what it means now. Um, I should say that having worked with Will, one of his former colleagues sent me a message before today saying to make sure that he sticks to time. <laughs> Sometimes he can he can run on a little bit. So I'm going to be pretty, um, I'm going to be quite strict there. Now, after Will's spoken, we're going to be joined by Alison McGovern, MP, who is part of the one of the most intelligent and dynamic of the sort of new wave of progressive politicians. Uh, she's been MP for Wirral South since 2010, Shadow Minister for um, uh, Media, Culture and Sport. Just a you know, fantastic CV. She's been, you know, um, also, you know, from my perspective, I'm, it's wonderful that she's agreed to join us today because um, I remember discussing these issues with her when we were at university together, you know, 20 odd years ago um, at UCL. And our final speaker also has a sort of pretty, you know, very impressive CV. So Jeff Morgan, CBE. Now, Jeff is Professor of Collective Intelligence, Public Policy and Social Innovation at UCL. But what's impressive about his career, one of the things which is, I think, very unusual is the way that he has spanned academia and public policy over the years. So he was an advisor to Gordon Brown, worked in Prime Minister's Strategy Unit, Director of Policy in Number 10, as well as now having been director of um, the think tank Demos, which I think he helped found, director of Nesta, Young Foundation. I mean, he's really been a sort of, you know, titan of of British public policy over the years, as well as being an academic fellow of, I think, I think he's visited the LSE, Melbourne, MIT, many of the sort of big um, institutions. So we have a wonderful panel tonight. 
Now, uh, after they speak, after so Jeff and Ali are going to talk for about sort of 10, 15 minutes each. At the end, once we've spoken, once everyone has spoken, there's going to be plenty of time for questions. And please, please, please put some questions in the comments box. And Emily Douglas, who's one of our um, brilliant uh, staff here at the LSE, she's going to be sort of collating those questions and we'll have a bit of a, a dialogue at the end of it. So with no further ado, Will, um, Jeff, Ali, thank you so much for joining us. And I'll hand over to you, Will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you very much. Um, well, I'm going to, after that, I really am going to try and do it in 30 minutes. Um, the state we're in, I mean, it defined my life, actually. I mean, it was a break point, inflection point. Um, I, I was told uh, some years back, it, it was the second best selling economics book of the 20th century after Keynes's Economic Consequences of the Peace. Um, and it was, I mean, really an astonishing moment. I mean, uh, the first print run was 3,000, uh, and it sold over 300,000. Um, it said number one on the nonfiction bestselling charts for seven or eight months, 25 years ago, uh, became a national talking point. And, you know, why? I mean, I, I mean, got rereading it, um, uh, and I thought, I, I thought I would, I thought I'd take the opportunity. I haven't actually... Uh, I've read parts of it, but never read the whole of it um, for 25 years. Um, and what and what kind of strikes me, I mean, apart from the fact, you know, um, the young Will Hutton was quite fired up, I have to say, uh, or the middle-aged Will Hutton was quite fired, was very fired up, um, is what a completely damning critique of how British capitalism, turbocharged by the Thatcherite New Right reforms, had become um, dysfunctional along with a, a dysfunctional market society that had spawned. And I think what was, I mean, I mean I'm perhaps the wrong person. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll find out from Alison and Jeff what they think, but and in your question and answer. But I mean, what I rereading it, what strikes me is how kind of anxious I was and still am to kind of understand the, and Britain as an interconnected system. Uh, it all connected. That was the, the constitution, the financial system, uh, the firm, the labour market, the market society, um, all of it connected. Um, and you couldn't, and you had to understand it as a system. Um, and I think the other thing that was important about it was that um, uh, it, it, kind of, it, it, it kind of met the spirit of the time because it was crucially and emphatically, although a critique of British capitalism, it wasn't, it wasn't socialist. Its, its remedies are remedies to make a dysfunctional capitalism functional and give it a kind of moral foundation and construct an inclusive high-trust society. And its intellectual influences were Galbraith, were Keynes, were Polanyi, Durkheim, Weber. Um, they certainly weren't um, Marx or the socialist tradition. Equally, it, wasn't, it was absolutely a kind of non-Tory book. I mean, it was um, not Hayekian. Um, because, I mean, the left and the right uh, have, you know, in their own ways, a systemic critique. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher had a systemic critique of, of Britain that uh, it was insufficiently capitalist, insufficiently market-based. And she, too, saw it as locking together um, as a system. And her reforms, privatisation, deregulation were kind of very much in that mindset. But by the time I published the book, it was all that had obviously run into the sand. And on the other hand, of course, the left has a systemic critique. I mean, British capitalism needed and needs, because there's uh, still that uh, kind of element around on the British left, to be socialised. 
And, um, you know, I took the view then and I take the view now, and I think that's important in the discussion of progressive politics, that actually, you know, um, the kind of full-blooded socialism um, is, A, I don't think the British are kind of children of the Enlightenment uh, and persuaded of fairness and the merits of kind of public and private, really they don't want to buy, go for full socialization. Um, and anyway, um, it had founded um, where it had been tried. And, and even the partial version launched by Attlee in the 45-51 government had not succeeded tremendously well economically, although less badly, I think, than some of the right-wing critics kind of insist. And certainly um, socially, I mean, the NHS. But I've always thought of the NHS as less of a socialist institution but an institution um, in which we collectively insure ourselves against the brute bad luck of illness. Uh, I see it as a kind of very effective collective centralized and kind of in, in, in insurance scheme. Um, and so there we were, you know, two kind of systemic theories of why Britain was in, was in trouble, left and right, not working. And, you know, uh, here was this alternative, you know, non-socialist, fiercely liberal social democratic, Kind of systemic critique of kind of um, how to how to analyze how to think about it, and I think that um, you know uh, I was articulating what obviously millions felt, and it, uh, Jeff was kind of close to um, both Tony and Gordon, so he'll be able to say illuminate this more. But it was what New Labour seemed to be reaching for in the run up to the ninety seven election and actually did partially. Uh, and um, So, I mean, just a kind of five minutes on the, on kind of how I saw it systemically in 96, and then kind of let's flip to now and, and see to what extent um, this framework works uh, and remedies work uh, and might illuminate progressive politics in 2021. Um, so, I mean, uh, for me, uh, the heart of the dysfunctionality of British capitalism was the interaction between um, a financial system that had grown up um, in the Industrial Revolution, very disengaged from industry, and the way it, in, uh, and the way it, in, it interacted with um, the core capitalist construct, the firm, um, which um, uh, was run solely around the idea of um, the sovereign shareholder and the sovereign kind of property owner and not recognizing um, the claims, responsibilities, the legitimate claims and responsibilities of many other stakeholders, um, crucially kind of employees uh, and customers, but also, you know, um, the claims that uh, you know, um, their nature might have on the firm. And I am... Um, um, so that was the heart of it. I mean, the and if you minded, if you've got the time, um, the chapter to read, which which sets that out, is Tomorrow's Money Today, Chapter Six. And I remember when I finished it, thinking, you know, I remember running around the garden, kind of um, shouting Eureka. You know, I, I thought this was the best chapter that I'd read anywhere, um, trying to kind of nail the shortcomings of the British financial system. And actually, I pretty much stand by it. Um, 25 years on. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I looked at the disengaged way that the Brits allowed BL to go to the wall compared with the very engaged way the Japanese had turned around a similar car company, Mazda at the time. 
I looked at the way Hanson Trust had marched through British business, taking over um, company after company with Gordon White, uh, Lord Hanson's accomplice, proudly saying, as I say in the book, um, that uh, he'd never, ever entered the shop floor of any of the companies they had taken over. It might distort his view of, of the need to do whatever he had to do that the financial numbers dictated. And what characterised all of it was very short-term paybacks, three years, very high returns, a 20% real, um, disengagement, anti-science, anti-innovation. Um, and it led to... Uh, and coupled with um, the macroeconomic policies of the Thatcherites years, the medium-term financial strategy, which led to a very overvalued exchange rate, deindustrialization. Um, but you could only make the labor market uh, work in such a world if it was much more flexible. Hence, the succession of acts um, uh, attacking the power of trade unions, and actually the creation of um, what I call the 30-30-40 society, uh, um, 40% of the only 40% of the adult working population having tenured secure pensionable employment, another 30% uh, having you know, insecure forms of work, temporary, part time, um, what we'd now call gig, and 30% kind of either kind of um, uh, work poor or, or you know, athlete market altogether or formerly unemployed. And that, that captured um, Tony Blair's imagination. He certainly used it in a conference speech. The 30, 30, 40 society, it kind of captured the, uh, the inequalities of British society, which weren't just quite inequalities of income, but they were kind of inequalities of life, chance, and kind of circumstance. Um, and I went on and I how privatization was kind of and the role of the market and individual self-interest and pursuit of individual was kind of everywhere. It was in shopping malls, it was in television, it was uh <clears throat> it was intruding into family life. Um, uh, it was kind of diminishing the British. And I thought, you know, attacks on it were um, bounced off a whole kind of nexus of interests that were that benefited from it, notably, you know, um, private schools, the landed, um, the city, obviously. And it was all, um, and he referred to that in your introduction, Neil, it was all kind of sanctified by what I call the culture of gentlemanliness. Um, and when I hear sometimes, you know, Boris Johnson and with his mellifluous tones uh, and the Tory cabinet, what they all have is the received pronunciation and that sense that this is the officer class, uh, you know, born to, born to rule. Um, uh, if there's time, I'll read out a section on gentlemanliness, which, which I was proud of at the time. Actually, I'm going to read it out. I think, I think it's, uh, it's important. It just you know, gives a sense of what the book was like. And, and actually, to what extent these issues still confront us as progressive, as progressives. The gentlemanly ideal I wrote is difficult to define. That's part of its mystique, but there's no doubting its motivating power for generations of Englishmen and women. A gentleman does not try too hard, is understated in his approach to life, celebrates sport, games and pleasure. He's fair-minded. He has good manners. He's relaxed in control of his time, is, has independent means, is steady under fire. A gentleman's word is his bond. He, he does not lie, takes pride in being practical, distrusts foreigners, is public-spirited, and above all, keeps his distance from those below him. The gentleman is a human island, simultaneously aware of the nuances of rank or recognise the importance of integrity and reputation in his relationship with his peers. The civilization, the civilization fostered by such values is extraordinarily favourable to finance, commerce, administration but not to industry. 
And when I look at the gen, uh, you know, recently the, the co-chairs of the Council of Science and Technology, Lord Brown and Sir Patrick Vallance, co-wrote a letter and a report um, to um, the um, Prime Minister and the Chancellor insisting that British finance was just not savvy enough about knowledge, was too gentlemanly. Um, and I quote, I, I, I quote uh, Herbert Levenstein, who was running a dyes company uh, just before the First World War, making exactly that point 115 years ago. So, you know, what's changed? Valance and Brown, gentlemanliness, uh, a financial system that is kind of um, you know, utterly kind of, uh, kind of averse to um, uh, kind of science. It's not gentlemanly to be too interested in science. Maybe changing a bit, but fundamentally, look at the if you if you want to get an um, uh, an IPO off the ground um, and get a good valuation for it, you don't float it in London, you float it in New York. And of course, all of the conservative hegemony was very dominant. Um, you mentioned that in your intro, you know, and it is, you know, it's it's the it's the English summer um, from Wimbledon through badminton and Ascot. Um, <coughs> it's the Lord Lieutenants of all our counties. Um, and the sense that being to be conservative is not being political. You're political if you're on the left, but if you're conservative, you're not political. Um, and um, what made me at the time so kind of coldly angry, angry was that uh, the, you know, um, there was needless economic dysfunction, the personal costs of living in a market society were high. And actually, you mentioned it, the abuse of the constitution. I mean, cash for questions and the Henry VIII powers, Tory MPs feathering their nest. I mean, it was all there in the 1990s. Um, and in its way, um, shocking, uh, uh, as shocking as what we're living through at the moment. Um, and I, I also had a, I also felt strongly um, that Labour had been complicit in this. Um, Labour had, was, too different, de uh, um, it deferred too much to the constitution. It, it wanted to win the majority in the first past the post system and socialize the country and believe there was a huge appetite for that. <coughs> and I, I just felt it gave, in a way, I, I'm writing in 96, I thought that uh, how the left had given the Tories a free pass um, from 1979 onward. And I would say the same now, actually. And I think that Len McCluskey's recent biography is an extraordinary tribute to that way of thinking. You know, one last push and we would have won in 2017 under Jeremy Corbyn and socialized Britain. Uh, uh, that would be massively popular. Um, uh, I disagreed with that in 1996. I disagreed with that in 2021. And my answer was um, citizenship, economic, political and social citizenship. Let's have stakeholder capitalism, let's have stronger intermediate institutions, let's reassert the social contract, and let's try and get our constitution right uh, to confer those the, that, that citizenship across the board. Well, where are we uh, today? Well, I mean, I have to say, uh, we've made some progress. I mean, we do have an independent central bank, and, uh, and on, it, on its court, I mean, in 1994, um, uh, Norman Lamont's chancellor and, and the nice John Major um, refused to allow a trade unionist to sit on the court of the Bank of England. Uh, and it's, it's, it's worth noticing that Francis O'Grady now sits on it. You know, it has changed. Uh, and the Tory, uh, the, the Bank of England is, um, has used its independence to um, some substantive reform, actually, of the way the financial system operates um, uh, and the way monetary policy operates. Um, so, you know, un under uh, Mark Carney, 
Um, we do the ba the banks. Uh, it's not only interest rates that the, which uh, moderate um, banks' behaviour. It's also going to be um, uh, the Bank of England will discount um, uh, loans that the um, banks have made to commerce, industry, business, and discount them for cash. Uh, until 2016, we were the only central bank in the world that didn't do that. Um, and one reason why the banking system was so biased against business. And the Vickers reforms have separated commercial banking from investment banking. Um, there's a statute regulator, um, Section 172, that uh, uh, Labour passed in the Companies Act in 2006, which Jeff had a hand, hand in, um, which requires companies to take notice of other stakeholders apart from shareholders has now been hardened by the corporate governance code so that every company that's quoted and every private company has to declare its purpose over and above being a profit maximizer and looking after shareholders. Um, there's an investment community which take investing on environment and societal and governance grounds much more seriously. Um, you know, it's not, uh, it's not um, the same story that I was in Veng against um, 25 years ago. Um, incomes, inequality has stopped widening, even though inequality of wealth has got more monumental. And some of the terrible things that happened in the 1990s, like massive repossessions, have been kind of stemmed by having fixed rate mortgages and building societies and banks, as they did during the COVID crisis, being much more benevolent than they were in the 1990s. I ran Hartford College, Oxford. You Thank you for mentioning that. 82% of our intake when I left came from state schools. And Oxford's intake from state schools is um, and is now two thirds when it was under a half and the state we're in. That's an improvement. Um, trade union membership has stopped falling. Um, I know you've got the prime minister talking about leveling up and actually you can't talk about leveling up without talking about how the system should respond. So, you know, um, I wouldn't want to argue that actually, uh, you know, nothing has changed. There has been some movement, but here's my big point. Um, I think that um, any party, any progressive party, any party left has to have a critique of capitalism, um, you know, and you, you may not want to go for full Marxist socialization, the means of production, but you've got, if you're going to be a party of the left, you've got to be reformist. Um, and you're going to, yeah, and get a line, and get your critique of, of the current capitalism, you know, right. And I think that we have a very kind of interesting development in, in, in British capitalism. Um, you've got what I've called the privatization of the private. Um, publicly coded companies, there were 3,000 of them when I wrote The State We're In. There's only 1,000 today. Uh, of that 1,000 that are quoted, a growing number do take um, the stakeholder approach that I advocated back in the day uh, much more seriously. They really take the delivery of, uh, they want to, they declare their purpose, they have to under the corporate governance code. They're held to account um, uh, for it by their shareholders increasingly. Many of them are taking a commitment to net zero seriously. I mean, this is not quite, this is not the world of um, Lord Hansen um, 25 years ago. Um, but, and here's where I, this is where I think things get start to get interesting. If you look at the, I mean, the London stock market is the worst performing um, um, since 2000, any in the, uh, in the G7 and amongst the worst in the OECD. Why? Because we have very few innovative big companies coming through. Uh, and the kind of legacy kind of economic structures that are reason why the poor economic performance in the North and the Midlands uh, is still there. And a lot of the business models kind of um, that are in the, that you can buy and sell on the stock market are essentially rentier. I mean, there's not much innovation. People have a commanding position, a monopoly or a near monopoly, and they exploit it. 
<coughs> and if they and uh, that's what attracts private equity and we've got this boom in private equity um which in many respects you know is kind of um a lord hansen um on steroids um but private equity isn't all bad I mean, some private equity is you know takes purpose seriously um and other is just kind of extracting value. So you have a you have two capitalisms sitting side by side with one another, kind of one a kind of stakeholder ap approach that aches and wants to be um, more innovative and is looking for support structures, uh, and another capitalism side by side with that, which is very rentier oriented, um, very um, uh, very value extractive, and throwing up still throwing up the kind of dynastic fortunes um, that actually disfigure our society. Um, Scale-ups are very disappointing, little presence in high-tech, and actually post-Brexit without any real industrial strategy, the growth rate in Britain, and I, I mean, I was despairing writing in 1996 that the growth rate might be falling from, you know, three and a quarter percent, it might fall to little more than two, I wrote, you know, we've got to do something. You know, here I am in 2021, the growth rate in 23, 24, 25, according to the Office of Budget Responsibility, is going to be 1.2, 1 1.3%. And that's sitting side by side with, you know, all the inequalities. We, the tenured, um, the 40% have even more advantages now, I think, than they had back in the day. Um, but the, um, the, that 30%, the, the bit in the, that bit in the middle, um, are kind of, they've grown. Um, you know, one of the things about the flexible air market is we've got more people in employment than before. And that 30 is nearer 35 and the, and the other 30 is nearer 25. But that 35 is extraordinarily insecure. That's the world of the gig economy, um, where an awful amount of risk has been displaced onto the shoulders of ordinary people. And this kind of insider outsider labor market um, is really kind of um, showing its face. And that's meant it harder to get a mortgage so that home ownership is falling, especially for the under 40s. You've got 2,000 food banks, two and a half million food parcels in 2021, it looks like. And, and uh, dentistry. I mean, free dentistry for less than half the population. Um, uh, anyone who's ever had a toothache will know how kind of, I mean, uh, you know, that's the circumstances in which a lot of people are living, especially around our coast and some of the kind of smaller towns on either side of the Pennines and around the deindustrialized Midlands. Uh, I mean, just horrible. Um, families falling apart um, and, you know, very poor health, um, life expectancy falling. Um, and then some of the things that worried me about the market society kind of ranking schools by you know, league table and all the rest of it. My God, I mean, anyone who's a parent of a, you know, um, 11, 12, 13 or 14 year old child, especially the girl, take this, the girls take it much more seriously. I mean, how many likes you've got, you know, on Instagram or on, or on Twitter or on whatever you're following, you know, and being excluded from whatever WhatsApp group, seeing the party that, you're in, that your friends are invited to, but you're not um uh in real time i mean my god you know uh, the kind of um, managing the, the fallout of and um, the way in which kind of um it and information technology is compounding the, the kind of imperfections of a market society really tricky uh really tricky i think um and actually um I read that piece said about gentlemanly capitalism. I mean, the gents are still in charge. I mean, an Etonian Prime Minister um, Cameron is succeeded by an Etonian um, Boris Johnson. Um, uh, and what I what I think increasingly is that within that forty percent of privileged 
there's a kind of half to one percent of the population where being upper middle class is kind of hardening into a caste where actually you can who you marry and how you educate your children where they're educated what university they go to what profession and they do once they've grown up are kind of handed on um and actually inheritance tax um and in, and uh, is not opening it up at all i mean the take from from inheritance tax is kind of derisory and i'm i'm you know i'm concerned that Britain in 2021 is kind of developing um, something that was observable in 96, but kind of dynasties of upper middle class families um, kind of occupying you know, the favoured housing and the favoured jobs in an economy that's actually going nowhere. Um, so, I mean, that's how I would see the state we're in in 2021 and the constitutional settlement as uh, more obviously fraying at the seams now than it was then. Um, Scotland's independence question mark, um, what's going to happen in Northern Ireland? Um, I think, frankly, um, if um, Northern Ireland stays in both the European single market and the UK single market, there will be an investment boom there. And I think that um, the, the case for reunification Ireland will become very hard to resist um, and that'll be the beginning of the end of the United Kingdom. Um, but, you know, Henry VIII powers on trade. I was inveighing against Henry VIII powers. I was inveighing against um, cash for questions. I was inveighing against the, the, the selling the selling of, of lordships and peerages in the House of Lords 25 years ago. And now the going rate seems to be three million, if you believe the Sunday Times. So, I mean, I, I um, where for progressive politics and all of this. And I think, you know, and we can't, I was very struck, um, the 80s began with the medium-term financial strategy, which was, um, you know, the, the new right program of constraining public expenditure, constraining borrowing, constraining the growth of money supply, constraining the state, open the door to privatization, necessarily leading to deregulation of the labor market. It was the medium-term financial strategy. And actually, it was coherent in its own way. It was intellectually underpinned by economics I disagreed with, but which I understood had, I understood its intellectual roots. And I increasingly think that Brexit for the right um, has the same kind of, plays the same kind of role as the MTFS did in 1980. You know, it is, you know, their project for the next decade. And that's certainly the Spartans and the right of the Tory party, I think, saw it in that way. It was going to open the door for, you know, Singapore on Thames, deregulation, cutting free from the burdensome red tape of Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I, uh, uh, it's, but there's no intellectual coherence to it at all. Um, I mean, not, and that's becoming more obvious by um, the month. Um, and what, what it's leading to is actually a kind of a, a right, at least right-wing politics in the 1980s was a right-wing politics, which was based upon Hayekian um, philosophy, um, Friedmanite economic theory. I mean, you could attack it philosophically and attack its intellectual foundations as I did um, as a good Keynesian, you know, in the 2020s, my fear is that um, Brexit is so kind of hopelessly got no sound intellectual roots um, that actually um, the fallback position is going to be for the right, a politics of identity and a politics of the flag uh, 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 and a politics of populist nationalism. Um, and that is hard for progressives to take on. But just to round up um, in my last few minutes, um, I, I, the, the good news is for us is I think there's a, a, 
the best in British business and the best in the high-tech startup community recognized um, that capitalism does need a reset. And they recognized that, um, that purpose, that business has to be driven by purpose first and foremost, from which profits follow. And that is a profound statement. And that actually the stakeholder approach to thinking about capitalism is right. And I think that argument um, is being won. And um, not completely won, but it's there to be driven home. Secondly, um, I think leveling up, um, and I'm glad the prime minister has put that on the, inter on the political intellectual agenda. I think it opens the way for progressives to argue that the only way to successfully level up is actually to embrace a new capitalism, um, to leapfrog um, what currently exists and to really kind of build kind of clusters of um, knowledge-based excellence and of innovation clusters, as well as the everyday economy. Um, and that requires um, a much more systemic approach to the way our financial system operates and the way our firms are governed than hitherto. It also means a root and branch overhaul of government. I mean, the leveling up department is the smallest of the nine departments that has to kind of coordinate their activities. And it's clear they're gonna successfully do this. And we can't raise the British growth rate from the abysmally low levels it is at, raise stagnant productivity from the abysmal levels it is at without a successful leveling up program. And you know, to do that requires coordinated government and a constitution overhaul. And I do think that's going to, got to be part of the progressive story. Another part of the progressive story has to be um, an understanding of actually what's happening in our families and what's happening and how uh, kind of insecurity and risk and um, kind of lack of material well-being is actually tearing people apart. I mean, the social question, I think, is um, really got to be kind of absolutely put kind of firm, more firmly on the map. Um, I think big tech does need a reset. Um, and I'm sure Jeff will talk to that. The constitution, leave aside the machinery of government, but if we're going to preserve um, uh, uh, these islands in some kind of amity, um, Scotland, Wales um, have got to be part of a, and, uh, and actually our city regions in England have got to be part of a more federal constitution. It's clear, and I'm right with Gordon Brown on this. I think he's completely right. And actually, uh, leveling up as well has exposed the imperial mindset of those at centre. I touched on this um, in the state we're in. Um, there was a very, very fine book called um, The Rise of Gentlemanly Capitalism, a two-volume a two book um, on our history. And actually looking at the way um, the story of um, empire and the story of industrialization was shot through with this notion of gentlemanliness, that actually industry was uh, happened by accident and that we didn't purposefully construct institutions to foster um, the Industrial Revolution back in the day. Um, hence, you know, we don't have industrial banks like Germans, and we don't have infrastructure banks. Um, hence, we've never thought carefully about the constitution of our firms. You know, we've never needed to. Um, it's all been um, really essentially about, you know, men, men mainly, kind of in tweeds and brogues, um, um, with a kind of um, gun kind of nestling under their arm about to well, go um, and that that we have to attack attack that culture. I mean, my last my last sentence, my last few sentences, um, and you're quite right to call me to account. I have been going for thirty minutes, and I have thirty one. Um, thirty one. Thirty one. <laughs> and, and you know um, what I think binds um, all this together is actually uh, thinking about trying to promote. And here is the fundamental point of any progressive position: a critique of capitalism 
a critique of the societal conditions it throws up and arguing for economic, social and political citizenship informed by enlightenment values as a solution and building a movement um, around that. And I think that um, there's things to say about Keynesian economics and how to attack kind of the Bentamites. And you can um, say them. Third our economic thought, but that's for another day. Um, I did that in the state room and I won't do that tonight. That's enough from me. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thanks, Will. Thank you very much. And yeah, almost the time, but not bad by the standards of things. Look, we're going to move on to Ali now. Um, so Will says, you know, that any progressive party has to have a critique of capitalism. That's one of the things he just said just now. Um, so do you agree with his critique of capitalism? What do you think of the book? And also, can I ask you, I'm worried that this is going to be too nice. And I think we should all disagree on stuff rather than just, you know, we, we've seen a sort of... Let's have a heated debate. Come on. Yeah, let's have a heated debate. So what did he get wrong? What's wrong with Will's approach on the world? And, you know, what's missing from his work? Well, um, I think that... I think that looking back on the book um, now and rereading the book now, I think that um, there are some parts of the British economy that have been very important that probably the book doesn't give a lot of importance to. There's a lot of focus on science and industry, which is right, but um, one of the great success stories of the British economy over the past 25 years has been the creative industries. But I'll come to that um, in a minute. I, you know, I think that's a really important bit. and. I suppose the other bit that that really struck me as I, I was reading through um, is is this point about the response to the culture war that it's kind of one thing to say you know the gentlemanly culture of um, the natural way in which the Tory party ought to be in power according to some um, and it's a whole other thing to see what too often the Conservative Party and those who are, um, I suppose, of, of, a, of a particularly socially conservative mindset fall into, which is these totemic issues of immigration, um, of, you know, uh, uh, racial and gender divides, the thing that we probably call the culture war now, and whether um, actually the progressive argument has to be much more about that and whether that's you know, should be at the forefront more. Um, and I think that's definitely something that looking back on, I, 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 wonder, I wonder if there could have been more on that in the book. But anyway, Neil, I hope you'll permit, permit me to be like a bit kind of uh, odious and um, sucking up for a minute about the book, because um, as, as you rightly uh, said earlier, um, we um, went to university in 1999 and had had, um, this book and its aftermath. And I think that um, I remember the very important cultural moment of, of the late 90s and feeling that sense of possibility. And um, we were at London University at UCL and it felt, um, it felt like an incredibly positive time to be in a city. People forget actually how bad of a time London had had um, in, in the 1980s and early 90s. And it was just kind of waking up from that. And, you know, we were heading to, to London-wide government once again, and there was so much hope. Um, it, it's almost easy for me to be, as a person who doesn't believe in nostalgia, to be nostalgic about the late 1990s. Um, but, I, you know, this book was important for, I suppose, 
what I think of as my generation of politicians, because I understood all too well what I had lived through politically as a child and growing up into my teenage years. Um, I knew that um, Margaret Thatcher and the Tory party did not care about families like mine very much. That, that was evident. Um, and particularly being from Merseyside, I knew that sort of broadly their ideas weren't our ideas. Um, a, a, a large number of, of my uh, friends at school had ended up either with a parent being made redundant uh, or in several cases having to move in with grandparents because they lost their house. So the kind of, the kind of shadow of those years really stayed with me for a very long time. But Will's book taught me not just what I'd lived through politically, which I knew only too well, but what I'd lived through economically. And um, I learned, ironically, more respect for Margaret Thatcher's position as an ideologue. I thought she was just a politician, but I learned that she was a proper ideologue, somebody who's, who had brought this, um, who'd brought real force to these new right ideas, to this, um, to this philosophy um, about the way that markets ought to work and that markets could tell you everything about the value um, of a firm or a thing. Um, and that, 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 was, that it was as simple as that. Um, but it also opened up a whole new world for me um, of an economic alternative. And I remember reading the book for the first time and, you know, I'd never heard the name Galbraith <laughs> before <laughs> I read this book. Um, uh, and I'd certainly never heard of the likes of, you know, Blanchflower, Hills, uh, Stiglitz and, and many others who became very familiar to me um, soon after. But, but it opened up a whole new world of a different way of thinking that had been only too absent, as you might imagine, in the somewhat, um, how can I put this? black and white kind of political environment of Merseyside in the 1980s and the 1990s. The idea that there might be a third alternative um, had not occurred to me. So it was very, very important. Um, I think that, um, I mean, just some of the commentary about the, um, the state of politics then is quite painful to read through now. It feels as though we left the stable door open, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, but, I also think that um, not, it's not one of the things that the, the book doesn't get it wrong, but, but, and Jeff will know even more about this than I do, but if the theory of the book is that where power lies has a, is you know, hugely influential on how the economy functions and that you need to get your institutions in the right shape for economic policy making, then, we had a broken system of governance for the UK. It got better. Um, the, the Scottish and Welsh devolution made it hugely better and London devolution and what happened in Northern Ireland. But English regional institutions needed to be more solid and more powerful than they are now, much less than, than they, they became soon after um, Labour took power. And I think that progress in England, particularly in the redistribution of power, really stalled. Um, and then, of course, we come to we come to Brexit, which has just been an unmitigated disaster for um, the redistribution of power. Given that you know so much of the kind of regional approach of the European Union has been taken back 
to Westminster. Um, one final thing um, before I conclude on the kind of where, where I think the balance of getting it right and the, the things that happened in the 25 years since that perhaps weren't foreseen. Um, the book is huge on, on the role of finance and uh, how and capital flows and how they affect um, almost everything. I mean, I think, in fact, if I may quote from the book and from the end of um, Tomorrow's Money Today, um, uh, I reread this sentence and I think it's, it is everything. The disintegration of family life and the decline in the public realm that disfigure contemporary Britain may seem far removed from London's financial markets, but they are as linked to them as remote shocks are to the epicenter of an earthquake. Yes, sir. <laughs> and, you know, that sense that actually most people in Britain do not understand the capital markets, but they affect almost every aspect of their, their life. You know, that is really a hugely important insight. Um, and I think I would very much, um, I would very much agree with with Will's point, which is that. Um, but now we're seeing that in digital and social media culture, and the way that these huge social media companies and digital companies, um, from their bases in, in the US, are having a massive influence on our economic and social lives in a way that we never really planned for. Um, and in a way that, you know, I think it's arguable that is kind of worse than Thatcherism because Margaret Thatcher at least believed in competition. Yeah, she yeah. at least believed in kind of that, you know, that the market should function. Whereas um, many of them, you know, we were dealing with like monopolies and oligopolies, which is hugely problematic. And it's particularly problematic for people who would wish to be successful in our creative industries because they simply cannot control the really the, the way the way that they access their market. Um, and I could wax lyrical for hours on, you know, Spotify and um, Netflix and, you know, a number of others on that front. But I'll just, I'll um, shut up in a second, but I, I would just sort of conclude by saying that um, it is such an important book because it was this incredibly thorough analysis. Um, the state we're in, this is where we are. Um, but crucially, it was also not a council of despair. Um, it was a plan for a new Britain that basically had a theory of change at its heart, which is that if you saw that the way that power was distributed was driving the distribution of capital, which was driving the distribution of opportunity in British society, if you understood how that worked, you could also change it. Um, and I think if you take that analysis now, it's still right. If we add to that the fact that Britain is a more multicultural society than it was 25 years ago, it's a society more interested in fairness and opportunity um, and diversity than it was 25 years ago, then I think there is an incredibly compelling case for a progressive government. Thanks, Ali. That's, um, yeah, like wonderful stuff, bit too nice, but we'll, we'll let you, um, we'll let you off because I'm going to ask Jeff to be really You're just going to be unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask him to be really horrible. Um, you know, reflections on the book, did, you know, I'm particularly interested, Jeff, in like, you know, did it actually change anything? Because people write a lot of books and then, you know, 
you know, they don't, well, I have a lot of books and they don't seem to change very much. Um, and I would also quite like you to reflect on this tech point, right? Because it seems to me like tech is sort of, you know, dominating the economy in a way which finance was in that period. So sort of any reflections on that would be great. So Jeff, thank you. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, well, I agree with almost every word both Will and Ali have said, but I will try and be uh, argumentative. Uh, and I'm actually surprised how few books you have on your bookcase behind you, Neil. But I assume that's because <laughs> you're probably not at home. I had actually, I'm at home. I had to move all the children. Okay. Books. Okay. <laughs> I was, so I'm just going to make make three points. I mean, first, for those of you who weren't around in 1995, I think it's just worth saying one minute on that moment. That came after 20 years, not only of Thatcherite neoliberal political dominance, but also intellectual dominance. They had been making the running. The left had been left behind. It had divided. It was angry. It kept failing. It kept losing elections. There was such a sort of national depression by the early 90s that this book came along and offered a diagnosis, a prescription. It pulled all the themes together and written in a, a, a the sort of inimitable, lively, energetic and positive style of will just filled such an extraordinary need people had for a, a sense-making narrative. And most of the arguments were not particularly novel ones. The idea of the dominance of finance over industry, of London over the regions, uh, short-termism, lack of R&D investment, the networks into you know, the public schools, elite power, the story of failed modernization of the constitution. These had been in a way, the standard tropes of the centre-left for several decades, but they were pulled together with great, um, great clarity and, uh, and vim. And it is, in a way, extraordinary how many parallels there are today with the Onions. And the weird thing about Boris Johnson is he says, fuck business, but I love banks, you know, which is almost, uh, which we sometimes forget. He said that only you know, several times in speeches. So two points, perhaps, of, um, to open up argument. So one which hasn't been mentioned is the, the, the status of declinism. So I think it's easy to forget that by the 1980s, most of the British elite and the intellectuals assumed Britain was in long-term remorseless decline relative to France, Germany, Japan, and the United States. On the right, this was attributed to the welfare state, the trade unions, and to the gentlemanly uh, values we'll describe. There was a whole slew of right-wing books making very similar arguments about the dominance of finance over industry and entrepreneurship. And they were very influential. The left had its version, which uh, again ascribed Britain's inevitable decline to the city, short-termism, monarchy, House of Lords, and so on. And this was the conventional wisdom. And actually the state we're in reading it again has a lot of that declinism in it. If you read it and really believed the diagnosis, you would expect Britain now to be a much poorer country than Germany, France, or the US. Now, since this is an LSE event, you can all go online and see the facts. The surprising facts are that actually since 1995 or since the 80s, the UK has slight, grown slightly faster than the US, France, Germany, and so on. It still has huge problems of productivity and so on, but that declinist story on both left and right turned out to be fundamentally wrong, to everyone's surprise, uh, in, in a way. Um, and even in terms of equality, it was wrong. US median income went up 16% since the 70s in the UK, it's 80%. We still have lots of inequality, but not quite as was expected. Now, I think the reasons, there's a lot of complicated reasons. Some of them are about the steps which were taken under Labour to fix the constitution, uh, public services, to shift investment, blah, blah, blah. 
They were also to do with migration, the extraordinary pulling in of talent and energy into uh, the big cities, particularly of the UK. And there was a big story about the knowledge, creative industries and so on, which Ali mentioned. But at the time of the state we're in, I, the one critique I wrote of it at the time said it was too focused on manufacturing and wasn't taking account of actually what the big new sources of growth would be, where Silicon Valley actually was a place to look not so more than Japan uh, and Germany. And I think that critique was basically right. And the UK economy turned out to be better suited to those kind of industries and growing firms in them than much of continental Europe uh, and has had a wall of a different kind, not private equity, but venture capital investment coming in as a result, which has you know, created a lots of jobs and opportunities with all the imbalances we're very uh, familiar with. So I think it's very important to at least ask the question, now how wrong was declinism, which was absolutely conventional wisdom back then, and what lessons do we learn from it? And then the final point I want to make, which is maybe the big one, is you know, if you were doing a, the state we're in for 2022, let's say, uh, what would be the same and what would be different? I had to do a much smaller exercise a few months ago for the Progressive Governance Summit, which is when the centre-left parties of the world come together, people like Olaf Schultz, just become Chancellor, Justin Trudeau, Jacinda Ardern, the Scandinavians, to, to talk about what is a progressive political programme. And I wrote not nearly as long a piece and not nearly as well written, but tried to make sense of you know, what is a progressive agenda right now. And it crystallised for me perhaps one, one issue with the state we're in. I think the book, very much mirroring what Margaret Thatcher would have thought, has law and money at its core. In some ways, these are things thought of as the sort of hard underpinnings of political economy and the state. And you have to change both of those capital markets on the one hand, constitutions on the other. And clearly, these are hugely important still. But I think that kind of this rather masculine view of how the world works is also deeply misleading and leaves out many of the things which are actually core to politics now. And Ali said a little bit about this. Many of them are about psychology and identity and culture and feelings and so on, not about hard money and hard law. And that's, in fact, where you know, the right has often outplayed the left in the last uh, 10 years. Many of them are about ecology and climate change. And it's good to see the Greek German Greens now with a you know, foreign minister. Um, that was largely invisible in that kind of classic political economy. It had very little really to say about ecological issues, which are now so central. Obviously, digital, third, that you know, most of the top 10 companies in the world are based on data and knowledge and platforms. There's all the issues around that, how you grow them, regulate them, etc., are now core to modern progressive uh, politics, how you protect kids from being ruined by, uh, by, uh, by Instagram. And then I'd also say how the state works. You know, if you're going to take 20, 30, 40% of GDP for the state, its operations are as important as the operation of, uh, of the private sector. And the left often has rather lacked any very good ideas about how to modernize, reform, transform the state using the tools available to us. This is much of what I spend my life working on nowadays with government. So it's, I'm a bit obsessed with it. But it's so often been a sort of blind side of the centre-left that it thought the state was a, just a, a, almost a black box machinery. You could just put money through and, and expect results to come. So these are, I think, some of the issues. And weirdly, of course, Boris Johnson, has, in his programme with levelling up, but also net zero and playing culture wars, sort of grasps that this is the political territory of the 2020s, means you have to be playing in those spaces as well as 
the, the issues of capital law and constitution uh, and so on. So I mean, I'm not saying you should have necessarily got that in 1995, but I think in, in a way what it reinforced to me rereading the book is we do need, as it were, a new sort of synthetic account of both the diagnosis and prescription. There isn't an equivalent book out there no. uh, now. I would love someone to write it, but I think it would have different chapter headings and a different you know, sort of focus in terms of what matters uh, and how to achieve that sort of majority coalition for change than was appropriate in the post-Thatcherite years uh, of the 90s. So maybe someone who is listening or watching today will be that author of the next state we are in. <laughs> Thank you. Will, do you want to respond to either Ali or Jeff at this point, or shall I, can I start getting nasty with my questions? Well, why don't you get nasty in your questions? I've got, I mean, I, I mean, I'm very interested by what um, and what both said. Actually, I think the, I think the, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you know, uh, I concede. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm struck. Um, one of the weaknesses I think in the book um, is the, um, is that I'm, I'm very, I'm very uh, manufacturing the trade deficit. Um, Ever getting bigger. I mean, actually, the manufacturing trade deficit is astonishingly high in the UK. Actually, and so is our current deficit. I mean, they are, but it's been going for twenty-five years. And you know, I thought that was unsustainable. It's plainly sustainable. Um, uh, that said, um, you know, here there's a, a line somewhere where I I, I worry that um, the trend of conservative thinking might lead us to leave Europe. I think no, no, no kind of, obviously impossible. Um, and, and then another line, there's another throwaway line where I worry that actually um, this this mountain of debt might lead to a financial crisis. You know, I don't build on it. You know, they just kind of, I, you know, when I was writing, I obviously thought this this thought crossed my mind. So I kind of, I, I do think, you know, um, that, I, that while I got stuff wrong, you know, there was other stuff I got right. But I do think your points, your twin points, both of you, one about the creative industries. Um, Complete. I mean, uh, 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 two declinism, um, and three. Um, your point at the end there, Jeff, which I'm not sure. I, I mean, I I'm not sure I completely get it. Um, and I, you know, we must discuss it with, in, in greater depth. But I, um, I, uh, I, 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 you're right. As a state we're in, in your this this respect, if I understand you correctly. You're kind of trying to say that. Um, not law, um, not money. Um, uh, think, think. I don't know. Think. Is it think data? Think digital coalitions? I mean, think, think new social movements. I wasn't quite. I wasn't quite sure what you were inviting me. I mean, you're right. Uh, I, need, we, I need to escape the kind of 20th century kind of that 20th century framework a bit and get into a 21st century kind of frame. But I'm not quite sure. I'm still not quite certain how to pin that down. So that's right. That's my reflections of what you both said. But thank you, by the way, for what you both said. So let me let me say a few things which I think, you know, we're going to come to the questions in just a second. I just, you know, so it seems to me, I mean, so Jeff's got a really interesting point around sort of, you know, you're too declinist, you know, both Jeff and Ali talk about sort of changes. You ignored sort of changes in the economy, the way that was going to change. Jeff's point there, I think, was about sort of identity politics. Let me. So the thing which I found strange about the book, right, was that reading it. So there's a sense, there's a bit in the conclusion where you talk about um, uh, the Conservative Party has become accustomed to power and has uh, constructed an effectively hegemonic po political position. And you wrote this in 1996, and I feel. 
so there's a the you know so I, I guess I'd sort of you know be interested in your sort of response to that and then just running through some of the questions so Andrew Lone has asked um, to what extent does our current Prime Minister I guess our current politics still sort of um, you know how much of this gentlemanliness is that still sort of you know today and then Max who's one of our sort of people at the um, LSE he's asked the question of like you know does this charisma this sort of like charisma type gentlemanly politics is that why we're ending up with a sort of brand focused politics of sort of leveling up and and rather than sort of actual sort of substance of policy change and I'll go with Will first but I'll ask Ali and Jeff for reflections on those as well please um yeah I mean I um I, I do. I mean, I, I, I am struck um, how, you know, uh, politics, how performative politics has become. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, Andrew Mars leaving the BBC. Is Andrew Neil going to come back? In a way, they're, they're quasi-political figures as much as interviewers. And the way in which, you know, Nadine Doris is culture secretary, I mean, put there because she's performative rather than because she knows anything. And she demonstrated this afternoon, not knowing that Channel 4 survives completely on private money and not public money. And you know politics, and uh, and we're all kind of swimming in a kind of stream of data that comes at us. You can almost kind of you can make the data almost fit any kind of thesis you may have. And there's a decline of um, there's fewer and fewer kind of facts that you can kind of these are public facts which are true. Um, and everything is kind of quite partisan. Everything else becomes very partisan, and and no one trusts the other. Um, it's very, I'm, I, you know, I, I, and I don't know how to get hold of that. I don't know how, you know, Humpty has been shattered, and I'm not quite sure how to put him back together again, actually. And I wonder, you know, when I wrote the state run, I had a very clear sense of there being a liberal order that was restorable, um, you know, pluralist liberal order that was restorable. You know, now I'm not sure, you know, what is the order? Um, you know, how would we, you know, what's the structures in which we do pluralist politics, you know, how would we get to stakeholder capitalism? What would it look like? Um, how, you know, what, what's, what's a union movement look like that really grows vigorously? You know, what is it, how would you do employee voice in companies? I mean, I'm not, I'm, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I know these are the right questions to ask, but I, I'm, I'm uncertain about um, how to give you an effective answer. In the next 20 minutes, it would be great to get a few kind of um, a, 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 a few pointers. So that's it's not as for gentlemanliness. I mean, I think um, I mean, I, I, um, Boris is a tough. His dad's a tough, and uh, you know um, when Caroline Wokes complained about you know. Uh, him smacking her bottom saying you know what a great seat she had and he was that uh, he, his, his kind of throwaway line you know to this appalling to this, you know, his throwaway line was um i don't reckon i don't recollect the moment um i don't recollect her hey ho um um good day to you i mean it was it was it was i'm throwing it off and, and you know boris is the son of stanley um and they're you know the family is this you know they're steeped in this culture, and actually, I'm one of the difficulties for us on the progressive side of politics is that there is a kind of, you know, they're the officer class. You know, they went over the top in 1914. You know, they lost 
we kind of those kinds of accents blew the whistle and men went over the top and the first people to die were the whistleblowers themselves they they have a kind of legitimacy curiously in britain um and they and they and the tories themselves um and i and I, and this is i mean you're to speak to the, the last bit of the book o'neill that you picked up on I mean, I do, I mean, when David Cameron rang Lord Bruffer, former treasurer of um, the Tory party, now a Lord because he'd given three million to the party at Lloyd's Bank and asked him to lend to Greenshill, you know, the front page story in the FT today, you know, what's going on in there, you know, and this is Tory to Tory. And they kind of, they do think they, they, they kind of think they are England and that actually within the tribe, anything goes because they're in the they're members of the same tribe. And it was the same feeling, I think, that why so many Tories went through the kind of yes votes to reform the Standards Commission, which they and defend Owen Patterson. He was a member of the tribe. You had to defend him. And you know, England is them. And, and kind of we connive in that on the progressive side of politics. And that's the hegemony that I was talking about in 95. Yes, we had you know 13 years of new labor, but I Jeff must speak. I mean, I never felt really that New Labour felt it had a, it was kind of, it, it owned, it, it felt it had a temporary, it was temporarily occupying the, the government seats, the government benches. Um, and actually, you know, the Telegraph and the Mail kind of still were framing the national conversation, even though there was a two hundred seat majority. It was never, it never felt um, as, it never felt the inflection point it could and should have been. And now, you know, in 2021, 11 years into um, Toryism, uh, and, you know, you worry that we're going to lose the next election again. You know, you, um, I rest my case. I mean, and I think Johnson, you know, his tousled hair, you know, um, people pig stuff uh, in Tyneside at the CBI, and, and the way he comes back, at the, the way he came back at Starmer in the house today. Um, I disagree with that line of attack. Uh, in that mellifluous received pronunciation, you know, he's going to get, he's, you know, it, these, we don't own that, we don't own the cultural signifiers of being the governors. Mm. I, I think it's really, uh, and it's disabling. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, Ali, do you want to come in? So, I mean, two questions about sort of gentlemanly capitalism. Do we still have it? Yeah. Here? I mean, um, it's really interesting, this point, because, um, I am in so many ways uniquely unqualified to participate in the gentlemanliness of capitalist British politics. Um, and in Merseyside, I'm from the Wirral, right, which is the posh bit of Merseyside. And then I come to Westminster and I am like the bit of wrath. It's like the most <laughs> dramatic kind of uh, dual life. But um, I, I think it's really interesting because whilst, yes, okay, the Labour government maybe um, it never really felt like they owned the, the place. Um, they, they bred a generation of people who decided that, though, that those people were not the boss of them. And that's not just, I think, those of us in politics. That's, that is precisely the, um, the people who are kind of, starting up their, you know, the kind of startup culture that we have in the UK, some of which is, you know, is problematic because actually we're offering people the prospect 
of starting and running their own business or being self-employed in a way that is never going to give them solidity of income. But that kind of sense of, of multiculturalism, you know, if you if you look at the data about some of the culture war attacks that the Tories have been trying to promulgate, they're actually, they're not working. People don't, by and large, support yeah. their positions. Um, and the idea that that Boris Johnson is anything of a gentleman when oh, yeah. I think by any definition, you know, no gentleman would use the kind of language that I consider to be racist, not just verbally, but in print, you know, I think is not real. So I suppose I think I am more positive than you will perhaps that actually they haven't got quite the vice-like grip that um, perhaps some in, in the Telegraph um, think that they have. I mean, even in the Daily Telegraph, right, even has an, an incredible campaigning women's sports pages these days. So even they are trying to kind of buy into the shifting society. So mm. I, I wonder if actually we're not in a better position than we might think. Mm. Um, and there's certainly a generation of, of us in politics on the left that, uh, yeah, are not, are not owned by the attitude, you know, we're not cowed by it. Just look at Jess Phillips and Stella Creasy, for heaven's sake. They yeah, literally yeah. are just like smashing through conventions um, day by day. But the thing that I've really learned about being in politics for the past 11 years, sort of not trying not to be cowed um, by the expectations uh, of, of politics, I guess, is that is this thing about celebrity and, you know, whether actually in order to be in politics now, in order to be powerful, you have to have some kind of celebrity. Because I, I think that's a really confused way of looking at where we are. Um, I think, of course, you know, Nigel Farage never been elected um, to any British um, institution, member of the European Parliament, ironically, but never actually been elected to, to a British institution. Um, but has had huge power because of celebrity, but equally so is Marcus Rashford and he's a 24 year old footballer. So like, that's, that's a thing that you can do, but in politics, real power is about what is about the institutions you build. You have a short time in politics necessarily, but making the bank of England independent has had a profound effect on our country. Um, if we are able to craft regional and sub-regional institutions in England that are able to make economic policy, that will have a profound effect on our country. Um, I, I learned through the Brexit wars of 2016 to 2019 that I, I wouldn't necessarily get what I wanted, but I could try and make the institution function, make the House of Commons function to represent the divide that was in the country and to try and craft a way forward. And arguably we failed because, not, not because we weren't able to do that, but because in the end, the incentives lined up for too many people to have a general election. But make, making the institutions work and function is where, in my opinion, real power is. And that that's the way that you really get to redistribute and you really get to change the country. And all of the kind of noise is important, but but not necessarily in the long term. Okay. Thanks, Ali. Jeff? 
Yeah, I'm probably like Ali. I'm actually a bit skeptical of the sort of exaggeration of Tory natural hegemony. It's true as a party, it's been brilliant at reinventing itself and getting power and keeping power, but it makes mistakes. By the early 2000s, 2000 new labor seemed very hegemonic the Tories didn't know what to do they couldn't couldn't capture you know public opinion the media was against them da, da, da. E -e even their their allies and i think in retrospect you know what happened was a failure to embed that position from the left to build the right institutions this was a constant argument i had with mr blair inside government institution building uh, as a as a key in sense hegemonic project there wasn't the building of a party. It was all done very much from the top down, a sort of advertising model of how political parties should be run. Uh, and then a whole series of political mistakes were made in the following 10 years, which you know, allowed the Conservatives to thrive. But I can easily see that turning around in you know, a very short space of time. I think we greatly exaggerate almost the structural forces over the contingent tactical factors which shape elections. And the fact that Schultz is chancellor in Germany barely a year after the SPD looked dead, you know, is yet another proof of that. They happen all the time in, in modern politics. And there are two other reasons for thinking that. One is, and they're, they're both sort of negatives in a way, we, we've sort of touched on 2007-8, but when capitalism literally almost collapsed and was bailed out by governments, you know, ever since then, it's been very hard to be a pure capitalist believer. Uh, anywhere in the world, that sort of almost intellectual and political ground disappeared. Uh, and you had to be about reforming capitalism or changing it or adjusting it. Um, and of course, that was reinforced by COVID and the massive sort of state bailouts in the last 18 months. It's also reinforced by this social media issue that just as TV transformed politics, obviously the age of Instagram and so on changes it too. And it is a politics which is much more performative uh, in a way, much more perhaps emotional in its tone than would have been the case for the gentleman of 30, 40 years ago. But again, that makes it more open as well. You can combat in that space and win ground. I'm just disappointed. I don't think Labour is doing very well in that respect at all at the moment. Uh, but at least that's a, that's a new uh, space. And then finally, the point I was trying to make, Will, about law and finance. Because I don't anymore see them as the kind of you know, the fundamental underpinnings off which everything is based. I think actually the key underpinnings for us now are the systems our lives depend on, the systems of energy, the systems of communication, the systems of food. And those are the place where politics has to have an account of how it's going to orient them to the public uh, interest. And finance is part of that story, but it's nothing like as dominant a part of the story as it would have been a generation or two ago. And here, I think we need new, new ways of thinking as well as new ways of acting. But that's a sort of 30 second summary of a much longer point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Will, do you want to come back on that? No, I think that's really, I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm intrigued. I think that's, uh, I mean, I, 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 uh, I, <clears throat> I think, yeah. I'm trying to think whether I agree with that point. Um, it's a clever point about systems. Of systems of finance, systems of energy, um, and I'm trying to I'm trying to marry it with your earlier point about the belief in institutions. I mean, I I mean, I you know, one of the one of the problems of New Labour is it didn't leave. I mean, it hardly left an institutional trace. I mean, compared with the Attlee government, which left you know, I mean, the NHS. Um, um, well, and I suspect the NHS is going to come totemic, not British, but, but internationally actually, given. The success with the third with the with the boosters you know um and peter was going to say we want you know a centralized system like that um so you know 
um, what did New Labour leave behind? I mean, um, Sure Start was great, but it wasn't embedded. Um, and devolution to a degree. Um, but I'm not quite sure how that marries with your point about systems. I mean, when you're saying energy system, I mean, um, that's going to be, there's going to be kind of institutions in it. Isn't there? It's not just going to be a stream of data or um, lot, a, a myriad of producers and a myriad of consumers in a kind of stream. Um, there are going to be there's going to be energy companies and there's going to be energy consumers, and energy regulators, aren't there? I mean, I'm um, uh, I'm not I mean, I'm not I you know I'm, I, I so I'm not I'm not quite sure where that go where that takes us, Jeff. What I do think, what I, I strongly agree with you, um, is that I'm uh, and I, please don't hear me and those of you who remain on the call for being too pessimist. I do think your point about you know, the SPD looked dead 12 months ago, now he's Chancellor, and, and Joe Biden looked out for the count, and now he's President. I mean, contemporary politics can, can flip on a sixpence. And I, um, and I, uh, and you're, uh, I, and it's so difficult to disentangle kind of um, the, uh, I mean, I know, I know Blenheim Park quite well, um, and the shooting parties in Blenheim, I mean, are incredible. I met somebody uh, who said they'd actually decided to left the Conservative Party and became a Lib Dem because they weren't prepared to be part of the slaughter of animals um, in uh, in the park of Blenheim, in Blenheim Palace Park. You know, um, the the world of I mean, the the world the rich inhabit, um, the landed estates, the things they do, the yachts they sail, and the private jets they live in, um, the privatized sealed world they. Uh, is and actually gentlemanly values are kind of um, saturated and that 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 is there you know and, and they give a lot of money to the Tory party and 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 but you know you're right you know uh, if you if you look at high-tech startups um and actually the boards of some of our, of some of our better public companies they're not in that place at all they're in a completely different place. Um, they're purpose-driven. Um, they want to make the world better through the companies that they form, um, and um, they're part of they're, they're part of fluid networks. And I guess actually, Jeff, you'd say they're part of systems. And actually, um, they're very progressive. Um, they'd like this conversation. Um, they embrace the new. Um, they want to experiment with new ways of living, um, and they they kind of mock that that other world. And that's part of it, of this kind of trying to disentangle um, which is the most vigorous part of the two capitalisms which confront us, you know. Um, this privatization of the private part with these this kind of dynastic wealth which I described and its links to Toryism, or you know, a kind of quite quite an enlightened capitalism, which are very sympathetic to the kind of things we're saying, and very sympathetic, I must say, actually, uh, Alison to the Labour Party. I mean, I'm very struck by um, some of the reactions to Keir Starmer's speech privately and publicly um, uh, in the wake of the CBI conference this week. So, you know, I mean, I... I mean, yeah. Will, so, I want to... So yeah. I don't, I don't, don't, don't want to end by being pessimistic. No, no. I do think, Can I, do I just think, throw one... Yeah, go for it. Just like, one look. So I actually wrote a piece earlier this year on how narrow, as it were, the socioeconomic base of the current Johnsonite leadership is in historic terms. It has a base in a handful of newspapers, a handful of donors, and that's essentially it. It doesn't have a base in business. 
in science, in academia, in civil society, almost anywhere else. And it's, it's quite unusual in historical terms to have a leadership with such a thin base. And that's actually also why he personally is pretty vulnerable to being booted out of his job in the not too distant. That's a very no, good point. I agree with that. And I, I also, Will, we've, we've got 10 minutes left, so I want to I want to finish off on policy, if that's okay, if that's yeah. not too... Um, um, <laughs> this, is like a, this is like working with you all over again. The, um, <laughs> so, I mean, first of all, I, I want to talk about so policy. So some people have suggested that, um, well, there's a great question, which is, are, is community wealth building, foundational economy and the everyday economy, natural successes at stakeholder economy? So I'll push that to sort of, you know, Will, I guess... Um, you know, Jeff, Ali, Mark Frensham has a great point here about, you know, Will made this point that the left, are, you know, uh, the left are giving conservatives a free pass like they did in the 1980s. So he wants to know how can a new progressive agenda be framed in a way that sort of unites the left? I think he's sort of interested. I'd be particularly interested in the views of, of Jeff and Ali on that. Yes, um, so, Will, if we actually start off with a quick answer, a relatively quick answer on this point around community wealth building, is that a successor to stakeholder capitalism? It's part of it. I mean, I think it's part of it. It's a kind of it's a decentralized local form of stakeholderism, and I'm strongly in favor of it. I mean, I have you know, but it's it's don't um, don't fetishize it too much. I mean, I and uh, of course, I mean, uh, and it can get um, very parochial very quickly. Um, so there's downsides to it. But to the to the big big question, um, it's part of a common. I mean, somewhere we have to have institutions of the common wheel, and I and I and I'm so you know I'm. Uh, it's very public ownership, stakeholder companies, um, this kind of uh, common ownership at local level. Absolutely. It's all part of a family of institutions that would give the economy a very different motion and society a very different structure. That was admirably concise, Will. Thank you very much. Um, Ali, do you want to start off on, on this Mark's point around, you know, how can you unite the left and, and sort of how can you frame a new progressive agenda? Um, well, I have a very specific take on this, which is um, uh, we need to win. Um, the country can't afford yeah. any more Labour Party internal debates, navel gazing or otherwise time wasting. Um, and therefore, what we need, and I think um, what Keir's set out, and forgive me if I sound like a loyal front venture, but that's what I am. Um, what, what we're setting out is a view about where the country should go in a way that we can build a broad coalition of voters so that we can win an election. So that means policies that affect huge amounts of people in their daily lives. And we've seen it over the past they also with the social care announcement. Um, we want to um, have wealth taxes so to make sure that we are putting uh, the burden on those with the broader shoulders and the Tories are doing the opposite. Um, but there's there's a whole, you know, whole different set of areas. Education, I mean, giving kids proper opportunities to have a broad curriculum where they actually get an opportunity to um, learn about creative subjects, which have been totally stripped from the curriculum. Those kinds of things that where parents right across the country and from all different backgrounds care about those things. And it gives us half a chance of building a big coalition of voters that will elect a Labour government. And so I'm not really sure 
exactly in what way um, the question, uh, think the person asking the question thinks that we should unite the left other than bringing together that coalition of voters so that we can win. Because the Labour Party really does let the country down when it spends far too much time pontificating on its own internal divides and not enough time winning elections and running the country. End of soapbox. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, Jeff. Well, I, mean, I did, I did I mention the rather long thing I wrote for the Progressive Governance Summit for exactly this question. And one of its points was it don't just unite the left. You've got to reach quite a lot of people who probably don't think of themselves as the left. Talk to people not like you. I live in Luton rather than Blenheim Park, so I have a slightly different picture of the fellow citizens <laughs> who need to be persuaded of an agenda. But the governments I work with, and I work with several which are coalitions of the centre-left, like in Finland, basically their programmes have quite a simple structure. Well-being is at the core, and I still feel that is kind of obvious, but a very profound shift of thinking about uh, policy and politics, if you really take that seriously, and mental health and anxiety and all those other things. Secondly, net zero, obviously, a clear pathway for the next 10 or 20 years, but one which gives new opportunities in terms of jobs and skills and so on. It isn't just a, a burden and sacrifice. A transformed welfare state, which addresses issues like uh, care, precariousness, and so on. And then fourth, the transformation of the state. So you are actually you know, using a truly 21st century vehicle to achieve these things. Now, there's lots else, but uh, those are not bad starting points, not just for uniting the centre-left, but actually for appealing to a lot of people who might very easily vote Conservative uh, uh, if you're not offering that positive alternative to the future. Thank you. That's great. Moving, moving beyond Blenheim is... <laughs> Feels, um, yeah, feels important, I guess. So I'm just going to finish up. We've got what time for one very quick answer from you all, which is Ben Reed's got a really nice question, which is what books or ideas are we going to be discussing in 25 years' time? And I'm going to exclude Jeff from mentioning any of his own books, although, because I've read them. <laughs> and that's what I would say, but it's, it's the question's going to Will first. Um, it gives me an opportunity to say something which I think is important. And um, you're thinking about this lecture, um, I... Uh, I was aware when I wrote The State We're In, you know, and I think all of, all of you made this point, and I was synthesizing so much that was around. I mean, it, there was, you know, so much around. I mean, there was, there were great economic, there was some great economics, there was, uh, the CBI were coming up with critiques of the financial system, so was the Bank of England. I mean, it was, you know, the air was alive. And actually, um, and I, you know, I'm beginning to think it might be, that might be happening again. Um, I'm beginning to think it might be happening again. I mean, I'm struck by what the Centre for Economic Performance is doing um, with the Resolution Foundation on the on the you know this critical decade. Um, I'm struck by some of the books that are coming out. I mean, I um, I'm halfway through um, Diane Cole's book, The Cog and the Monster. I think that some of the books we're talking about in 25 years' time will be some of the books that are thinking really hard about digital capitalism and the surveillance culture that goes with it. Um, you know, the powers of economic and social control that's going with digitalization. You know, digitalization has got enormous, and all the data, you know, enormous power for good in all of that, but also it's quite menacing. Um, I'm thinking of the kind of credit scoring system they have in China and how it, how it can be adapted in, in European and American countries and the United States. So, you know, I, I, uh, 
I want to be optimistic at the end of this. I, I, I do think things can turn very quickly. I think there's um, lots of really good work going on that, you know, um, a 40-something kind of um, Will Hutton or comparator could synthesize into something well, like we're in. So I want to be up. I want to be upbeat. I think we can turn this around. Let's good. That's a great, great ending. Ali, quick comments. <clears throat> Um, well, I I think probably the book I'm going to be reading in 25 years' time is a review of Jurgen Klopp's time managing Liverpool, but um, because <laughs> nostalgia will have, will have really set in. But actually, um, I think that Jeff was right. I think that um, public well-being is a very important kind of new front. Um, and I've thought a lot about um, what we mean by well-being, because... There's so much kind of Instagram celebrity driven kind of self-care sort of guff around that I think from a point of view of public policy, we need to be really clear about the life that we think people should be able to expect. And I think that means success on your own terms. And so I think there's a lot to fill out in terms of public service reform about how we help people to understand their own well-being and what they want to achieve for themselves. That's great. Um, alongside kind of uh, some of the competition issues where we I think we actually need to rethink competition in the light of all of the digital stuff but well-being well-being wonderful thank you and Jeff to finish us off thank you 20 seconds um so I think there's a wonderful intellectual ferment going on in various domains I'm interested in psychology computer science systems complexity I don't think that's yet reflected in the political economy. I can't think of a book equivalent to the state we're in now. And it maybe it's impossible to write, in part because in most of the fields I work on, the practice is quite a way ahead of the theory. Uh, and, um, and it's quite hard for the, the writers really to keep up with the frontiers of social innovation or digital innovation or, uh, and so on. And there may be almost be in a structural period, perhaps a book can't have the same impact Will had 25 years ago. Yeah. Wonderful, thank you. As a theorist, I feel yeah, hurt, but that, that, that seems fair. <laughs> um, wonderful, look, thank you so much, um, all three of you. It's been like a really, it's been an extremely fascinating event. We have hired a um, brilliant undergraduate to do a review of the book, um, which should be out in a couple of weeks. So it's going to be really interesting to see what she makes of it um, as someone yeah. who's in her sort of early 20s. So Rania um, Ramley, one of our brilliant undergraduates, is going to be producing that. This will be, of course, a podcast on the LSE website. I'm sorry if we didn't get to answer everyone's questions. And thank you so much um, once again. It's a real shame we can't do a round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it enormously. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.